0: mm <phone rings>
1: Dear friends, it is Alley Audio Vision rocketing down the runway for its fourth flight. Buckle up, Clark Yarrington with Frame Residential Design in Anchorage, Alaska. On behalf of the flight crew, architect Ralph Alley spent 30 years designing in and flying around Alaska beginning in 1959. In this episode, Ralph recounts trips by plane to Dillingham and Soldatna. We compare notes about which can be scarier, a Cessna or a 737. Ralph takes to the skies once again on a tour of the so-called self-dumping lake in Mat-Su, and we learn why it was referred to as such. Most of the time, Ralph spends his time designing buildings. In 1960, he also helped to build them. Ralph welcomes 1961 with friends at a classic Alaska New Year's Eve party. His new digs on 4th Avenue are spruced up. And we close the episode with the appearance in Anchorage of Ralph's frat brother, Frank Nosek, an attorney and renegade. Ralph Alley joins me from an undisclosed Southern California location. Ralph, you there?
2: I am here. And right now I am at least back in time drafting away in my little drafting station. And I had just moved up to Anchorage. Bob Hamilton, who hired me in Seattle slipped in behind me and he says you're going to dillingham well i had no idea what dillingham was and he never liked to stick around and explain things but he says i fixed it up with bill and he says everything's set you're going to go tomorrow and you got to be ready here at the office at 6:30 you got to have boots on cuz we're going where the mud's high <laughs> and so i said okay i'll be there and i was and we went out to actually Gordon's dad's airways out at Merrill Field and got in this little four-seater plane. And it was Bob and his wife, Betty, and the pilot from uh, the airways and myself. We took off directly west across the inlet, right into those beautiful, gorgeous mountains across the way that I call Ice Cream Cake Mountains. And once we were there, we kind of slipped into this large canyon. It's a pass that goes to the other side of those mountains. And Bob's wife is scared to death of that pass because she says the wings will touch the sides. Well, they don't really come near it, but it sure feels like it when you're in there. And she was just biting her nails, and we made it through in good stead. And on the other side, you come to this great, area where Lake Eklutna and, and the valley of the 10,000 smokes and all of that is out there. And we flew by a lot of that over to the top of the peninsula that uh, I heard first heard of from my uncle during World War II. He fought out and, out there. We landed at a place called Dillingham. It was mud and it was small the pilot wanted to um, go over the plane and see the fuel is okay, why Bob went and had a meeting there. So somebody at the little airport there says, I'll drive you up to a place where you can eat. And he drove Betty and I up to this lunch place and it was the classic Alaskan fishing village cafe with stools and uh, formica with squiggles all over it and burns all along the way. And there were like three booths and wood in the back. We went back there and Betty and I sat and she was really nervous uh, and she was twitching around and, and she started conversation about Idaho, where she's from. And we talked about that for a while. And then finally she came up with this. She says, I understand you are going to sublet Cora Kendall's apartment this summer. And I said, Yes. She says, well, Bob and I are going to Europe. Uh, we're going to go see my fair lady in New York, and then we're flying on to Europe, and I want you to house in our house starting late September. So I didn't have any reason not to, and I said that I would. We went on to King Salmon and, and back home to Anchorage, and it was one spectacular flight. I think, Clark, if you've never done that, you should go, <laughs> because... If you think Anchorage has a lot of majestic qualities about it, that backcountry in there is just breathtaking.
1: I've been to Bethel a couple of times, and some of the villages outlying from there, but not to Dillingham. You've got a reason to be wary of any type of a plane because of something that happened to you after the time that we're talking about now. But I was wondering, at, at least before then, did you find... Things felt sketchier in small planes or in large ones. I've always uh, sort of felt more secure in those little planes. I'm not sure why. I think it's because they kind of, they seem more together, you know. You can see what the pilot's doing. You're on this big jet. And you think about, like, um, these thousands of pounds of passengers and all their luggage. And the, and the whole thing is, like, shaking like mad when it's taking off. And you look out the window and you see the wings kind of flapping, you know. <laughs> it's not exactly a... you're you're just, you've got your faith in technology, but you're wondering, like, how is all this working whatsoever? You know, it just seems like it's going to fly apart in a million pieces, right? Well, small
2: planes fascinated me, actually. I have somewhat the same qualms that you have about large airplanes, and they keep getting larger. And once planes got so large, you couldn't look out the window and get some reference to where you were. That really spooked me. But that seems to be the way the world goes these days. And I've had projects uh, down in the Caribbean and stuff where that's all there was. And you sit kind of in this bubble. (laughs) You have no idea what's going on, really.
1: So you're back in Dillingham. Did you ever find out the reason for the trip?
2: Oh, yeah. She wanted, first of all, he had me there to distract her because she gets so nervous in little planes. And especially that pass through the uh, mountain range, Alaska Range, across to the west of Anchorage. And it's long, and it is narrow, but it isn't all that narrow, and it's beautiful. I really enjoyed it. But she wanted specifically to ask me to house sit, and she thought she should probably do it herself. And she did. And uh, that was a nice experience. We'll get into that later. I learned a few things by living there.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was probably a nice change of pace.
2: Well, I was living at the boarding house, and I had spent the summer at uh, sublet Cora Horton Kendall's apartment. When I drafted the uh, house up in the hill, I was only back a short time before I was back sitting at Hamilton's house. The boarding lady was getting a little <laughs> miffed at me because <laughs> she had a nice room for me, but. Every time I went back, well, she had to keep her own finances going, so she always put people there. But what happened uh, after I left the boarding house the second time, I moved into Bob and Betty's place. I didn't have a lot to move, of course, but it was a flat-roofed, aspiring architect's lot of glass little house. And it was very well designed. It was in those days, Westchester Flats had this beautiful brook through it and tall trees. It was uh, just a little woods all to myself. And out the back door and the back windows was this creek and had ice on the sides. And it was just a beautiful sound. And I enjoyed having that peace and quiet and the trees would rustle. And I'm, I'm a loner and I just love being isolated there. And I had a lot of work to do. I had to finish drafting things. So
1: that's the neighborhood that we would now call Inlet View, I'm guessing. But it was uh, before the Minnesota Bypass went through there and before they created the lagoon by damming up the end of the creek. And so the character of the place was a lot different, right? Much quieter (laughs) and kind of like at the end of the trail versus like uh, alongside a superhighway.
2: A lot of development happened after that. Uh, there were subdivisions that went into there. The office buildings, the tionic buildings went in, and then more. I've been through there the last time I was there, and I barely recognized. Uh, but there was the natatorium, which was the swimming pool for Anchorage, which was a big deal. And uh, But in those days, it was just a beautiful wooded place with a creek going through it, and I really loved staying there for those weeks. The thing in my own life. I've never really been alone. Uh, I grew up in a family. It was pretty vi- vibrant. And, uh, of course, college and, and all of the commotion around there with where you sleep and what you sleep in. And all of that having privacy uh, just escaped me. I really didn't have it until that summer uh, in Cora Kendall's apartment, or Cora Horton's apartment. And that was a revelation to me, but having that just specific spot away from elevators, away from neighbors and, and the noises that go on in hallways and apartments, that was a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I really got this idea that maybe all architecture should try to aspire to uh, bring this place for people to uh, have a sanctuary in their life that they could, go to and renew and and, uh, not be uh, just interrupted with urban noise
1: it's not it's nice if you can get it i'm working um, now on a house that's under construction up there at stuck again heights and it's still like that there but that's a relative rarity now you know every place else in the flat part of anchorage uh, there's just this uh, constant hum and more than that you know there's all kinds of weird sounds there's these sounds that have been happening that uh, um, nobody can figure out what they are even have you heard about that a strange story no but
2: like what
1: um there are these sort of sounds that sound like uh like a really loud um sad trombone or something you know like a series of kind of um honking noises and then uh, sometimes it also has like this excruciating grinding metal on metal sound that accompanies it and it's been happening for years and it's a worldwide phenomenon i guess
2: you mean it Like it would happen in California, too? Yeah, in
1: various places. Sometimes they're called trumpets in the sky, something like that, but it's uh, been noticing it with increased uh, frequency around Anchorage, and since a lot of people have uh, cell phones or even more serious recording equipment that's being documented more, there's been articles about it.
2: Say the name one more time that's been given it, given the phenomenon.
1: It's referred to sometimes as trumpets in the sky. You know, that's Maybe just uh, Gabriel
2: is blowing his horn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, something's going on, but it's kind of strange that it uh, sometimes it's really loud and in the middle of the night, and people are getting a little bit uh, uh, freaked out about it, but you know, not as much as other things that have been happening recently. But uh,
2: <laughs> well, we do live in an interesting time, but it's not the first time, and right, I, I think I told you that once before, uh, not. On the air, but you know, in World War II there was polio and it just frightened everyone to death. And uh, social distancing, it wasn't called that. That's what happened. Uh, we stayed apart.
1: Yeah, definitely. I've uh, been aware of that too, that this uh, isn't the first time that something like this has afflicted uh, humanity.
2: Well, you are talking about small planes. I've been in the smallest, <laughs> I think I told you about Roger Spiker. He, we were in college together, and he and I just hit it off right away. He was a year ahead of me, and I'm always surprised when these people that I know and like just happen into Anchorage, but he happened there, and he worked behind me. He was a big, tall, wiry, muscular guy, great sense of humor, and always enjoyed him. And it seemed so strange to have him there next to me because I had him for several years, at least three, right behind me in uh, college. But he moved there. He was one of these people, we couldn't figure out why they moved to Alaska, but he wanted to build a house and uh, himself. And he also owned an airplane, which didn't quite fit anybody's um, idea of why people would be up there.
1: Did he end up uh, staying, or um, was he a short timer?
2: Yes, he he did stay, and uh, I will get into more of that. But uh, he really did partake of Alaska in, I think, the sense of a lot of people dream about living. But we were. I actually received another commission to do a duplex down in Saldatna, Alaska. He knew by now that. Uh, I was doing work on the side, and he said to me, okay, he says, "Uh, I'll fly you down there. We'll just go down in the evening and spend the night under the plane and come back the next morning when it's light. (laughs) So I drove out to this gravel airport, and I can't remember. I think it was off O'Malley, uh, not not Huffman. And I drove there, and of course Roger was so tall, And I saw him first, but then when I got got to the plane, there was a plane uh, that was about (laughs) right next to the runways, a little tiny thing. And I asked him if he was sure he'd get up in the air, and he said, of course. So
1: did he (laughs) ask you, like, uh, how much you weighed? (laughs) (laughs) No.
2: (laughs) I was a skinny little guy then. He probably wasn't worried. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, they he said, well, get in. And I said, there's an in in there. I said, aren't you saying we should put it on rather than get in it? And he said, Ralph, stop that. Get in. He said, this is a tandem plane. And uh, so I got in there and uh, he got in the front seat and scooted the back like pilots always do. And we, I could see out, which I'm glad I could. But when we, Started up there were all these wires beside me that kept scraping (laughs) against my body and I said what are these things and he says well that's the tutelage for the flappers and uh, Everything that keeps us playing the air and don't you stop them or we'll go in the drink But anyway, we uh, took off started west took went over the shoreline took forever to get over the connect arm (laughs) It was like a tricycle in the sky and all these other planes would be zooming by us at full speed, and we were still going there. But the Kinnick it, arm that,
1: or the turnigan arm? It almost sounds like you started, oh, it's going, a arm. started yes, going the it's wrong the way.
2: Arm. Yes, <laughs> it's the Turnigan. arm. And uh, anyway, we finally went over the uh, Kenai Peninsula shoreline, and it was late getting toward low sun, and that was... Uh, Big, so low right over the surface, you could see the long shadows of these beautiful trees and they would just kind of take to the contours of the land and it was so beautiful being in motion and seeing that happening. I don't think I can really give it justice with words but I'd never quite experienced that in uh, evening time. We finally saw some buildings and we, in the airport in and we landed, we found the people I was to meet with about the duplex, and we were there for about an hour, and after we said afterwards, he says, let's fly to Kenai, get something to eat, and then we'll sleep under the plane. Now, this plane isn't very big, <laughs> but we did have sleeping bags, and we found a place to eat, and after dinner, we got underneath he got under one wing and I got under the other, and it was a really nice sleep. Really enjoyed it. And the next morning we flew back. That was a, another experience in an airplane, and this was the smallest airplane I had ever been in the air. <laughs> and that was really kind of a, a moment in my life where I think that almost anything could fly.
1: Was it noisy?
2: Yes. Yeah, you probably
1: were ready to land by the time you got there.
2: <laughs> yes.
1: We have landed at the uh, time for the first break. So oh. let's uh, um, do that and come back in a minute and talk some more. Stand okay.
0: by. Okay. Let's fly. Way up to the clouds Away from the maddening crowds We can sing in the glow of a star That I know of where lovers enjoy peace of mind Let us leave the confusion And all this illusion behind Just like birds of a feather A rainbow together we'll find Volare. Oh, oh, oh. Egan oh, 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 no wonder my happy heart sings, your love has given me wings.
1: Clark Yarrington, flying over the airways with you here on Alley Audio Vision. Ralph's airborne in the next segment with the Flight seeing jaunt to Lake George. All right, Ralph, before that break, we were talking about a flight you made in an impossibly small plane to Soldatna with a side trip to Kenai and back to Anchorage.
2: Yeah, it, uh, it's funny, all the people that seem to move in and out of Manly Mayor. Charlie Blumfield one time said, One thing about working at Manly Mayor you'll meet every architect in the state. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> I, there were so many people I seemed to get some kind of uh, notability in architecture. Dick Mayo is one and Art Bennell is another. There are some people who didn't stay long that I really enjoyed. Uh, Fred Ostman and Dan Chapman of course was an engineer but uh, he was always in our office because he was Trick Diamond Hayes uh, civil engineer rep for some buildings that were done. But I think Most colorful one was uh, Lou Wilburn. Lou Wilburn flew up, and I can't remember where. I think it was like, seems like he was always talking about Wichita, back in Wichita. (laughs) But he had a lot of experiences, and he was crusty and earthy and very kind. Lou Wilburn didn't strike some people there as being civilized enough to be an architecture office but he was good he'd had a lot of commercial experience had been in las vegas had done casinos and and a good draftsman and knowledgeable and uh, so he uh, kept on uh, chuck kendall who was associate uh, told me to just watch out one day he'll just disappear and never be there and i said no i won't he, he seems like a nice fellow and he says you just wait but anyway one day I, I think last time I explained to you that Yvonne Esbenson took over the first secretary's position there and she became uh, Wally Hickel's executive secretary for 47 years. And she and I became friends then and we still are friends. She came to me one day in the office and said, don't ask why, but would you go and pay $55? And I said, well, what? <laughs> what is it? She wouldn't tell me because... So anyway, she says, well, Fred and I are both going. So I looked at this Fred Osman, who was a great big tall. He was 6'5", actually, and just as wry a personality as you'd ever meet. He had a repertoire of cynicism that was beyond belief and very funny. But he finally looked at me and he says, we're going to go look at the Lake George Classic as it empties. I said, oh, good. You're going to do this in a plane? He says, that's the only way to see it. And I said, well, who's the pilot? And he said to me, Lou Wellborn. <laughs> what?
1: That's always the important question, isn't it?
2: Yes. But when he said Lou Wellborn, he's this rough cut gym that we had in the office. I had my Corvair by then. Uh, I had ordered it. First spring I was there and got it early spring the next year. I took Fred and Yvonne out in it and Fred was six foot five and sat, and was in the back seat, and he was dangled all over. I don't even know how he did it. <laughs> it looked like something you see in a carnival. This guy, but we drove out to uh, Merrillfield, and uh, Lou Welburn was already out there checking over the plane, and we got in. We started taxing, and I had mentioned this that this chapter of going to see the Lake George Classic is in my book, and it is something, a phenomena, that was huge in uh, Anchorage in those years. And after the quake, it disappeared. It's never been there, and most people don't know of it. But there were all kinds of money bet on the exact moment it will go, and if you happen to guess, You'd never have to work ever again in your life.
1: We still have a contest uh, similar to that these days. That I think it existed back then too to guess the time the ice will go out on the uh, Nenana River.
2: Oh yeah, the Nenana. Well, this or maybe is that's not the it.
1: name of the river, but that's where the tripod's located. Might be the Tanana yes. River. I'm not sure. Anyway.
2: Well, there's a passage in my book on this. I think you have that. Why don't you just read it? You do so well and it sounds so good to me and. Read this.
1: You're too kind, Ralph. I think I bungled the last one a little bit, but I'm willing to try again. <laughs>
2: you absolutely didn't. <laughs> You're, oh, you good. have a beautiful voice. Just uh, read it, because the description, I think everyone would like to hear it.
1: Okay. We strap up, taxi, test, and take off. Lou turns the plane and heads into Chugach's long mountain wall. We rise fast above its initial peaks, that Alice in Wonderland effect, a shrinking physical significance amid massive, enveloping surroundings. Altitude reveals a boundless repetition of snow-covered peaks of ten to 13,000 feet. A left correction veers our course away from the college fjords off Prince Williams. Lou projects his voice above the engine noise. That's our lake ahead, as the crow flies it's 45 miles from Anchorage. When full, that sucker's the size of Manhattan. See Kinnick Glacier off starboard? In a year's time, that glacier slams into the side of Mount Palmer over off port side and blocks a four-mile-wide passage where huge amounts of water from spring and summer runoff must drain into Matt Valley's Kinnick River. This ice dam varies in depths from five to seven miles and is 300 feet in height. Big! Glacier melt starts slow, and a small gouge forms against the heat radiating from the mountain. With the melting, the lake finds its way to drain, though. The, the gouge becomes a gorge, and it widens to 400 feet. The powerful force of the water buildup collapses the ice dam. See that hell breaking loose at its peak? George empties to a foot high in one hour and floods the Knick River. We'll fly out that way and take a look. Driving back from Merrill, Yvonne and Fred talk excitedly, interrupting one another about the flight. Tall Fred is dangled and entangled all over, coping with my coop's back seat, raising my own voice to cut through the chat. What's in your head? What are your thoughts about Lake George's spectacle? From Fred's repertoire of Snide comes that I paid fifty-five dollars to watch a giant toilet bowl flush. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That was Fred Ostman. But that was a busy summer. I I had cautioned them that I had the state boards coming up, and I was going to take them. And I asked what would happen to my $55 if the uh, Lake George happens to uh, empty at that time. And Fred looked down his nose and said, it doesn't care about your state boards (laughs) That was just the way he is about everything.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's it probably was better entertainment than a lot of other uh, choices at, of the time, right?
2: Yes. That Anyway, I was studying away in the apartment right after that, and the uh, phone rings, and it was uh, Cora Horton. And she says, Millie and I are going to go see Eisenhower. And I said, Eisenhower? Are you going to D.C.? And, and she says, no, he's going to be in town. He's coming Uh, down Fifth Avenue. I said, well, when? She says, well, this afternoon, June 12th. What time? And blah, 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 this all. Anyway, I said, well, I am studying. And she says, well, you've got to come. Millie and I are going to take you out to dinner afterwards. Of course, that, that was always music to my ears to have nice cooked food. And so I went and we parked actually in the parking lot at the uh, uh, boarding house uh, and stood in front of uh, the furriers, uh, which was a big log cabin and uh, just one of the places that I said, Howard wanted to see. So we stood out there and they had this four-door open Lincoln convertible. It wasn't the one that Kennedy was assassinated in. His is a later model. Way up the street, you could see Eisenhower with his arms stretched out like the Christ the Redeemer and uh, Malcorca Cavado in Brazil, and and, (laughs) and how he stood that way for so long. I'll never know. It was amazing. He must have been fixed to the floor with braces going clear up his legs or somewhere. It was amazing to see. But, they, I, it, I mean, the amazing part is how fast they went. It was, uh, there was film of that. And it just, he just whipped by. I was perfectly composed, looking back and forth at everybody with his arms waving and stuff. I, I don't know how he did it, but he did. And it was fun seeing Eisenhower. And I am not prone to get... Uh, all excited over that kind of thing. But I will say that I liked Ike in those days. And it was just fun seeing a president. And I had seen uh, Harry Truman in Spokane, Washington when I was in high school and uh, and Bess and Margaret, his daughter. And that was always kind of a thing that has stood out in my mind, even though I don't pine away to do that, but it was fun seeing Eisenhower. And Anyway, I was, uh, after I was studying for the exams at that time, uh, Roger Spiker bought land up in the hills next to the, up by the six-sided house. Five acres, and asked me if, well, I got to back up. The guy I met on the boat trip on Valdez had asked me to do his house and if I would do his daylight basement. And I had already made the contract. I had designed it. And uh, he wanted to put it in the ground that summer. And he made a deal with Roger. They both were pilots. They both knew each other by now. uh, If he would help him build it. And so Roger asked me if I would help them build it too and uh, I said yes. So after work we would head off to the hills and work most of the night because it's light. (laughs) I learned some Really great things about construction that I never knew about, and how uh, different elements go together and how they're fixed and why they're fixed, and how you what you fix them with. and I learned how heavy cement bags are and how heavy water is a gallon. and I all those things have come in really handy later in life, but it was a summer. It was hands-on, but my hands were absolutely raw, and I was trying to draft in the office one day. And Mayor, who is not as judicious as Mayor was or Manley was, Mayor came up, grabbed my hands, turned them over, and he says, "What's going on here?" And I said, Well, try to say something that, to justify it. And I said, Well, I've been trying to learn things that would help me be better used to you here in the office. And he, he wasn't buying it. He says, By <laughs> damn, if you're going, I don't care what you do after hours. He says, I'm not going to get into that. But he says, When you are here, you've got to be at your best and you've got to be able to produce, produce, produce. And Roger Spiker was right behind me, and he always wore these little—he was tall and lean, but he always had these little drafting aprons with little pockets in the front. You may have known people who wore those things. Yeah, my but dad, it, it, for one. It, your dad, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he took his little hands, which were equally as bad as mine, and tucked them in his fore pockets and just kind of skedaddled, I saw. <laughs> he wasn't sticking around to be reprimanded whatsoever. I had to take the heat. But...
1: Sounds like all you guys really needed was, uh, you know, some some good lotion or maybe some gloves to wear while you were, like, uh, doing the concrete work.
2: Oh, probably. We were lifting concrete blocks. Those weigh 16 pounds apiece, by the way, 8 by 8 by 16. I was... I, by the when we began, they were a lot heavier than when we ended. I put on a little muscle in those days that summer.
1: Yeah, I had a little bit of a taste of work like that myself about in 81, I think it was. I was working for the summer doing uh, labor at that condo project, the same one where I think both you and my dad worked there in different incarnations of it on the design of the buildings. Oh, Woodside but, East? Yeah, so I was working at Woodside East there, and the first week that I was there, like in May, I think, and and we spent like uh six days straight, twelve hours a day, and we were kind of like backfilling um garage foundations by hand. So we so we had oh, wheelbarrows and these uh short handled shovels and we were shoveling rocks back into the foundation, you know. Oh my god. <laughs> and I swear like at the end of the sixth day I went home and uh crashed and I woke up in the morning and I couldn't straighten out my fingers. They were still like curled up from holding the shovel. <laughs> That was nuts.
2: (laughs) I had some periods like that during that summer, if I could unbend myself, uh, it was well worth it because a lot of the hands-on education I had has been useful.
1: Yeah, no doubt you were um, paying attention, and um, I've heard that critique about architects a lot, that they should all have to go into the field, learn how things are actually built, you know. I think the criticism's often overblown, but at the same time, like, uh, it wouldn't hurt anything, huh, to know a little bit more?
2: Well, no one, by looking at me, ever expected that I knew construction like that <laughs> and it right. was fun being able to just spit out stuff right off the top of my head when they started in on me
1: <laughs> yeah as often, as often as they did. would
2: yes roger's place as soon as we got the basement in and had it covered and let the uh, uh, electrician and uh mechanical plumbers mechanical people and mecha- plumbers in there we moved over to roger's site and his place was simple but it was a house two stories with a shed roof on top. It was on piers. And of course the whole process of that, you do the piers and we blocked it off and we built the floor and then we, it it was pretty well Western framing. And uh, we had an upper floor and the staircase and and we put on the walls and the roof and then uh, finished it up to where it was livable, put windows in and doors. And that was pretty exciting, and it went fast. Roger may have been a lot like your daddy, taking the sizes of materials, and there was very little waste. Everything was based on the 4x8 uh, model, and it, it was quite an interesting way to build without putting any angles and wanting to have angles. But it was a nice house out there in the middle of the woods. I appreciated having the time on it. Definitely, and that uh,
1: those two experiences then must have, in some ways, informed everything that you did after that. Oh
2: yeah, I I actually uh, the only time I'd ever been around construction, real construction, was in New Mexico, and I was a kid. I was there every day, but I loved it. It kind of wet my appetite for that kind of life. But that was the summer of '60. Winter came in, and uh, December and guy named Kyle in the office and he was up there without family and he had a family but they weren't there yet and so I invited him to come up for New Year's festivities in Roger's house and he Roger had three children and he built this beautiful ice skating rink not a rink but a pond you could ice skate on and that's where I learned to ice skate was on that pond and his wife Ardella was a very good skater and she taught me a few things about edges and that it gets pretty intricate when you get on skates, how, which edge you have, <laughs> that you do certain turns on, and it was quite an education. But anyway, we were up there with Kyle and, and Roger's family and myself and had this beautiful fire. It was gold, just blazing away out in there, the dark, and there was snow on the ground, and we were all ice skating out there, and then uh, uh, Roger and his wife went in and cooked on this wood stove that they had, and the air was filled with these beautiful smells and wafting smoke and and the uh, flaring fire and the ice skating on the uh, pond. And it was just kind of an exciting evening. And it was cold, but it was just almost a thing of the past to be there. I can remember after we went in and had this wonderful meal inside, and uh, we just sat around and, and talked. And I can remember poor Kyle. He says... I don't think I'm in Australia. Australia, I can't talk like that. Australia anymore, like in The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, that's and, that's not your
1: best impression that you've done so far, huh? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I won't try it ever again, I promise. <laughs> but we were sitting there, but everything just seemed so perfect that night. and It was like, bring on 1961. It's got to be good.
1: Got what you came for, for this Alaska experience finally. Well, doesn't it seem like the more of these we do, these segments pass more quickly. This is no exception. We're ready for our second break already. Hang on a bit and we'll be right back.
0: sing, sisters, we're all leaving today, and we'll all go riding on a rainbow to a new land far In
1: Coming up, Ralph Wills, a borrowed truck to stay on the Palmer Highway, on his way to, as he finds out later, consign an entertainment center. And this journey on Alley Audio Vision concludes with the appearance of Frank Nosek, another college friend. Let's land this thing. Before the pause, you were talking, Ralph, about... A really good experience and uh was it got was it a New Year's party?
2: Yes, New Year's Eve. And it's a I hate New Year's Eve and that was Oh me too. The Best New Year's Eve I've ever had, and it just was so nice, quiet, and peaceful. I loved it.
1: So that was 1959, turning into 1960, or no, 60 60, turning turning to 1961.
2: Yeah, I'd been there almost two years, and uh, I'd taken my first state board exams. Uh, I had helped build a couple of structures. I had my first house up. It was just kind of amazing time. But 1961 happened to be a time that people started leaving. And of course, Polly had left a little before. And I like that gal. She's the secretary of Manny Mayer. And, and uh, Yvonne was there. But seemed like Ray, who saw me, finally left. Walt started going with Yvonne. And they have really hit it off well. And Ray moved in with me at the L Street and, and was doing a Kickbush's house, actually. And uh, I got a little bit of orientation with that, but time just kept going on and on. And Walt returns, and Ray was sleeping in Walt's room in my apartment in the L Street, and that caused a little trouble. And then Walt and Yvonne break up and that summer, and Walt leaves, and the Gibneys, who had Studio One, they leave, and so I took over their apartment, which was over the Chichaco Bar, and I lived there from that year up until right before the earthquake which was a good thing I moved that time yeah the building
1: uh, went down in the quake so again for Anchorage people this is not the latter day Chichaco bar that was on fireweed but the one that was uh, down at 4th and E in that really interesting little building
2: Uh, well that was a an interesting time on 4th Avenue, too, because the uh, Hofbrau, you may or may not have heard of it, was right next door. It had these wonderful roasts turning on spits in the windows, and it was a great place to go. And They had beer and wonderful roast beef, and uh, I used to hang out there quite a bit. I loved that place, and you couldn't resist it. If you walked by that store window, you had to go there. But I was... Sad to see Gibbony's leave because Studio One was kind of a haunt of mine, but they felt it was time to get to warmer climate and uh, get away from stairs, which everything they did had stairs to it. I did have my appointment with the Giboney's and and Bob File who owned that building, uh, he and his uh, sister, Muriel File, and he approved and I moved in. And at last I had my own place without any roommates or anything. Just as soon as I seem to get settled into something, there's always a phone rings or a knock on the door.
1: Which way did your windows uh, look out of that apartment?
2: Oh, I had three sides to that apartment. Wow. uh, There were several rooms in the. That's one reason I took the apartment because I've never had that in an apartment. But there was a kitchen, unexpected dining area, a large entryway. A little hall, a big bathroom, a sizable bathroom, and a sizable bedroom and back. And the bedroom and back looked north out at Elmendorf, and the windows out of the bathroom and the living room uh, looked over the top of the uh, or the lower building out to the Chugach. It was a uh, it was a great light in it, which I love.
1: I think that's one of the tragedies about modern Anchorage is that uh, there's been, you know, I think finally they're starting to rethink this and get people living in the original downtown town site again. There have been a couple of uh, large uh, apartment buildings that have been built in, in the last couple of years. But for the for a long time, there was just fewer and fewer people there all the time, it, you know, until it's probably still the case where there's uh, fewer people living. On those blocks than at any time since uh, uh, you know 1920. <laughs> it's too bad. It's a it,
2: well. When I was there, it seemed like there were a lot of a lot of people who haunted that avenue. You'd bump into them everywhere you went, and uh, it, it it was. I I even met some really fine people just passing them every day, going back and forth to work.
1: There's a saying that you can take almost any town, and uh, the downtown is still the coolest part of the town, even if it's got some problems. Yes. You know, it's, it tends to be true.
2: That apartment was, with the Gibneys in there, was quite plush. They had great furnishings, a lot of books. He was with the Great Books Organization there in Anchorage. They had art that they'd collected. Of course, once they got rid of all that stuff, it, it uh, I kept the curtains. and the or It wasn't curtains. It was uh, bamboo hangings across the windows. All of that was painted a warm gray, the walls, everything one color. But it was so pretty with their stuff in there. And I kept that. And... Uh, I kept their bed because they didn't want to move it to California. It just worked out well. My friend Eddie Lum, the interior designer, he uh, helped me buy some rugs and lamps and things. And uh, when Lou left, this gets kind of detailed in my book, but he came to me and asked me, uh, if I could use a television set. Well, I didn't have one. He says, I've got all of that. He says, the television, the stereos, the radios, it's all beautiful, uh, a contemporary look. And I said, okay, I'll, 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 I'll buy it. So anyway, I, he lived in Willow, And he showed me how to get to his place, and it was just snow, slick as could be. And uh, he said, you've got to have a truck. And, of course, Roger heard this, and Roger says to me, "Uh, you can borrow my truck. And I said, okay. So I drove up to his place on the hill and got his truck. It was green, and he said, now, be careful. He says, whenever you step on the brakes, (laughs) the doors fly open. (laughs) I said, well, thank you. (laughs) And they they did. It was kind of an amazing thing. But he said, just be careful. Just don't slam them down and they'll stay shut. It was a two-door. It wasn't a four-door pickup. And anyway, I... Started out across the flats and it was so slick and snowy. I couldn't believe it. And I had already made the bend toward the dam, the road that goes up to the dam. And I'm not quite sure long where it happened, but uh, there was something that occurred that I had to slam on the brakes and the doors flew open and the pickup just started skidding over to the edge. And I thought, I'm going to just die right here. And I, and I couldn't stop it. I was doing everything I could. Uh, steering, it didn't help. Stepping on anything didn't help. The doors were open. And I went, good
1: God, stop it!
2: And it stopped. I couldn't believe it. I was, I was so amazed.
1: <laughs> That's the last thing you tried and the most unlikely uh, <laughs> yes, thing to have worked. any effect, and it worked. <laughs> Weird.
2: <laughs> so I got out, and I s- shut all the doors. And actually, I could get the car back on the road. Uh, I can't remember how, but I did. And I carefully drove to Willow. I got there, and Wilbur was there, and he gave me his stereo and the television set and the whole set. And he had some blankets. And he says, now, look, he says, this is the receipt for this stuff. He says, I still have payments to go. And I said, Lou, am I buying this? Or am I stealing stealing this? And he says, that's up to you. (laughs) He had already told me the Ferrari story about winning it in in Las Vegas, and he drove the hell out of it until they repossessed it. And I thought, oh, this is going to be some thing. So anyway.
1: Seems like you'd end up resenting these people. You know, you're on this... uh... (laughs) Crazy expedition for some stuff that you didn't even really go looking for.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I finally made it back to Anchorage and got the truck back up to uh, Spikers. And and he helped me with the stuff to buy. And uh, I I guess I can't remember where it was in the meantime before we got it to my appointment. Maybe I just left it in his pickup and he brought it into town. But uh, I was... In a store where he bought that, and I went in to talk to the manager because I could afford it for paying his payments. And so, anyway, I got the I I had this big conference conference with him, and you could see through the windows from the street that I was talking to him, and we're going over these papers and stuff and, and the loan papers. He got out, we looked at it, and and so I agreed that I would pay the rest of it, and we redid. Uh, blew off of that and put me on the papers and I went back to the office and one of the new guys was named Wendell and I won't say his last name but he had yellow, large yellow eyes like an owl and it was, I'm sure his eyelids had been surgically removed because he never blinked but he saw everything, he knew everything, he, he could glean information off of people like you couldn't believe and it really was kind of irritating to have someone like that but he was always Watching. I was back at my drafting desk and he says, I saw you through the window on um, Fifth Avenue the other day. And I said, What window was that? And he says, um, Over at the electronic store down the street next to Charles. That was Charles' drugstore in those days. And I said, Well, yeah, I was in there. He says, uh, It looked like you were looking at loan papers. <laughs> this is how nosy he was. <laughs>
1: <laughs> could read the fine print says, from 20 feet away. <laughs>
2: He says, does that have anything to do with Lou Wellborn? <laughs> I don't know. This whole thing, that's just how inner office relationships are. And you just, I, I was never good at handling them. But I well, there's great friendships out of there too. But man, on the whole, I would say I'd rather work by myself.
1: Sounds like just a uh, sort of standard small town BS, you know. Like, uh, yes, I, I lived in Seattle before Anchorage, and and so like I I thought this place was a horrid backwater when I was first here, you know. And partly for reasons like that, like if people were too much in your uh, business all the time, there was no way to uh, just kind of fade into the background. Well, as much as I needed to, when I was still kind of young and you know living at my mom and dad's house, but you know what I mean.
2: Well, one thing. In my life, I haven't lived with my mom and dad really since, like, high school. It's kind of a strange thing that nowadays people still live with their parents uh, at a very late age, and it just didn't happen for me to do that. My dad, of course, died when I was fairly young, and my mother is very independent, and that was just the way life was for me. Don't feel sorry for me by the way. <laughs> I th- I think I benefited from that.
1: Yeah, it's every situation's different, you know. So, sometimes it wouldn't be so bad to have uh, multiple generations under one roof, you know. I, I don't know why the Americans like uh don't like that as much as uh, people from other places but
2: Well, back at the apartment given he's left and I had leased. I had it pretty well decorated and I had the television and the stereo. I love music and, and the radio and it was all really set in there. A white, can't remember what the rug was, but it was white. And Sawmey left me that long upholstered cushion with a bolster that he couldn't take back to California. And I had a few odds and ends like that, and I had a table put in there for eating, and it was I, it was very comfortable for me. And anyway, I was just thinking how wonderful it is uh, I could somewhat hear the drum beats down below in the Chichaco bar, but that was okay. And the door started get this knocking, just kept going on. I went said, "What is that?" So I went to the door, and it was Frank Nosek. He and I were in college together, he was a fraternity brother, and I saw him on the street in front of the Matanuska Valley Bank, and I thought, I hope that guy doesn't see me. But later I found out he did see me, and he found out uh, where I lived and who I was and what I was doing, and he says that I could never hide just because I was (laughs) me and he came to the door and said he had just been evicted and needed a place to sleep that night, and the guy stayed for two years.
1: I was never in a fraternity myself. I was a GDI, as they call them, but uh, it was from what people told me, you know, that was kind of like something that could follow you around for the rest of your life. Any of these guys who you lived with <laughs> during college could uh, come and stay for two years, you know, if, if they needed to. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, a fraternity brother and his wife just moved down to where I'm living, and they're to be next to my wife and I. So, they do kind of part of the deal around. Yes. But anyway, Frank was a big help to me in my life. He's a good attorney, and there are a lot of episodes with him that I can get into maybe in the next time.
1: Uh, Yeah, I think we're going to wrap this one up in the next uh, minute or two, so summarize, I suppose.
2: Well, summary is living on 4th Avenue was quite a nice thing for me because I got to know a lot of people, and go to these venues on 4th Avenue that were really fun and the hofbrau was one and i can remember one halloween frank and i went in there it was cold and he said we got to get out of this place it's halloween blah 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 we didn't have coats on. We just went over a couple of doors and the place was having Oktoberfest and Halloween and you name it. And I met all these people. One of them even became an ABC news correspondent on television who used to live in Anchorage. <laughs> I'd see him occasionally. I don't see him anymore. I met Alan Merson and Jerry Waite, who was uh, with the uh, a construction firm there, but Alan Merson was a kid from the East Coast, and he wanted me to design his house. Uh, he had bought an Aztec, a two-engine plane, so he could commute to the East Coast and back to see his parents on the weekends or whenever he wanted to. And Anyway, uh, it, that was just kind of a fun part of this thing. I didn't, he didn't go through with his house, but I did get into some initial uh, designs and it was way up high, uh, way above all the upper upper, upper Huffman lots. It was going to be a neat project, but he did not continue. I don't think he ever built anything there. He died young, actually. And
1: well, it's really fun to hear about um, that uh, part of 4th Avenue being a nice place to live. Those same blocks um, are, are not like that now. It's going to be pretty tough to um, turn that area into a nice place to live again, though I think someday like uh, somebody will see the vision and make it happen.
2: Well, either this time or next time, and we can start there. Frank is a renegade. He is free-form fellow. I was studying for the 1962 exams. Again, studying, and he it was June 21st. And maybe we can start that at our next. I don't know how much longer we have.
1: Oh, we're running over a little bit, so I think we should like uh kind of uh put a cork in this one, but um, yeah, it'll be a good okay. place to start. I can't wait to hear more about the guy.
2: He thought I should learn about life on lower fourth, <laughs> and I went. <laughs>
1: Well, I'll probably have to say that I, I'll probably have to apologize for, uh, like, uh, belittling him for, you know, taking advantage of the situation once you tell me more. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, it's been great talking with you once again, Ralph. I think you made me uh, feel better about uh, the state of the world in general. So thanks.
2: Well, thank you. Thank <laughs> you.
0: Someone who goes astray someone will come and show the way yes,
1: Ralph's work can be seen from 20,000 feet on his website, ourtechdivisions.com. My website is frame-ak.com. Ralph is working on a book about his time in Alaska. This has been Allie Audio Vision, episode four, recorded March 26, 2020. We love to fly and we'll be up in the clouds again before you know it. So long, dear friends.